Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today, we have with us a good friend of mine, and also not just a good friend, an orthopedic surgeon and a member of the Together Declaration, Dr. Ahmed Malik. Uh, Dr. Malik, listen, uh, we're just going to jump straight into it. Why don't you give us a quick one, two minute intro into who you are, and then we're going to dive on into the topics of today. Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me, Sonny. It's great to be here. Um, I'm an orthopedic consultant specializing in treating feet, um, born to immigrants from Pakistan, and I'm of um, Muslim background. I was born in Scotland, and I moved to London 20-odd years ago and live and work around London. Fantastic. So you've got around two decades of experience uh, within medicine, uh, practicing and study and all the rest of it. Um, one of the big things within medicine is medical ethics. And that's kind of the overarching topic of today. Uh, we're also going to be talking about informed consent, which falls under that same bracket of medical ethics. So why don't we first outline what medical ethics means to you? And then we're going to jump into the issues surrounding the vaccination process uh, that's occurred within the UK and as a matter of fact around the globe, how that's gone. Uh, for medical ethics, for me, it's fundamentally about that relationship between a doctor and a patient. And as a medical student, it's something that was drilled into us quite a lot. Um, we were always taught that doctors were one of the most trusted professions um, in society. You know, if the politicians are at the low end, we are at the high end. And the reason why was that, you know, um, patients could trust us. Now, trust isn't something you just take for granted. And trust takes time to nurture and develop. And it's something that's the relationship between patients and doctors has been developed over centuries. And the fundamentals are all about how we treat our patients and that's medical ethics, doing right by them. So for example, you may have heard things like, first, do no harm. So as a doctor, make sure we don't do anything in, you know, that will cause injury or harm to our patients. I mean, it sounds pretty obvious, um, but that's a basic tenant. Then you've heard of things like patient confidentiality, where you know when a patient comes to see me in this clinic room of mine, they can almost like, you know, I'm a, a Catholic priest in the confession booth. Whatever they say to me stays with me and I don't share it with them, not even with their loved ones, with their partner, with their children, no one. It's patient confidentiality. Then there's um, things like informed consent. I'm not allowed to do any form of medical intervention, whether it be giving them a tablet or an injection or an operation but first of all, informing them of their diagnosis, their options, the pros and cons of non-operative and operative treatment. Um, so these are some of the basic tenets of medical ethics. And I think it's important because if we don't have them or if they're eroded or harmed in any way, it will damage the fundamental relationship between patients and doctors and harm our profession um, of medicine. Okay, yeah, I think those tenants are essentially, like you say, the, the things that provide the backbone to the respect and trust that we as the general public have in our medical professionals. We trust blind, blindly that they will have our best interests at heart and trust blindly that they will give us the best potential options for us or at least outline the options so that we can make a decision and that brings us what i think is nicely onto the question of um why did you get involved with the together declaration uh, with everything that's going on and maybe to preface that uh maybe a couple minutes just about what the together declaration is what they stand for and why it was that you decided, hey, this is something for me. This is something I need to be involved with and use my platform to promote. Uh, I, yeah, that's a interesting point to make. So let's talk about Together Declaration. There's so many nuggets there we can break into. So Together Declaration was set up by someone called Alan Miller. Alan Miller is a bit of an activist. 
Um, he is involved in the nightlife scene in the UK, clubs, pubs, um, discos. And there are some restrictions a few years back about opening hours, and he became involved in that. Um, and then I think that opened his eyes to personal freedom, civil liberties. And late last year, he formed a, a group called Together Declaration with lots of other people. Um, I think Francis Hoare, a barrister, was involved. Um, and it was all about the lockdowns and the, and the measures that were taking place. And he felt, um, with many other people at the time, that the government had overreached their responsibilities and were infringing on people's rights. And the pandemic was being used to, as a, an excuse to, to cause all these restrictions when actually there was no science behind it. So that's the basis of Together Declaration. And then last year, when they forced mandates on care workers, Together Declaration um, stood up to that and said, no, this is wrong. We need to fight against it. Went to court. Um, and Francis Hoare, again, the barrister, launched a judicial review or law action and it was unfortunately not successful and then in December the government announced suddenly this U-turn about mandates how it's not going to have mandates for medics but it then said it will be introducing medics and um, mandates for all frontline the key word is frontline healthcare workers um, and now suddenly that would involve me you see now from my own personal journey with COVID, you know, to keep my sanity, I cut myself off from all media and news. And I was living in a little bubble. Yeah. And then I started getting emails from the hospital saying, um, what's your vaccination status? And uh, you need to be vaccinated by the 1st of April, fully vaccinated. And if not, you won't be able to practice. So suddenly my tiny little bubble popped and I faced losing my career and my, you know, my livelihood and my ability to treat patients. And suddenly, you know, this is quite serious. So I was like, okay, well, I need to get involved with this. I can do a legal action. I can do crowd justice and fund and raise funds. I've got a lot of patients who I've treated over the years who support me. I can either get on another bandwagon where everything's already taking place and there's, you know, a team of people involved. So I, um, I, I looked at um, to see who was out there fighting this and I came across the Together Declaration. And the interesting thing was some of the people involved in the background were also people who were involved with the Brexit campaign. And I knew them because I had been involved in the Brexit campaign. And it's a funny, I need, to do a, <laughs> I need to do a bit of a disclaimer here. So. Over the years, what I've found myself is I've been put into little pigeonhole camps. So some people would see me as a pro-Brexiteer, Eurosceptic, anti-freedom, racist. And then I've been put into the camp of I'm a pro-Trump supporter because I didn't like Hillary Clinton and her war campaigns. Then I was put into a conspiracy theorist group because I, I didn't believe this pandemic was what it was and then I was put into the anti-vaxxer group because I was skeptical about the data and science behind things and now I'm anti-mandate because <laughs> so I've, I've just found myself and you know if we take it right to the full fruition now I'm a pro-Putin lover and you know it just it's, it's crazy anyway so I think that partly I'm divergent I I, I think differently from many people who are following a narrative and I was lucky to fall into a group of very like-minded individuals at Together Declaration who wanted to find mandates and the push wasn't you know vaccines are bad it was personal freedom bodily autonomy is important and the reality is I, I would I think I'd struggle to find anyone who would really argue that that's a wrong thing you know, I think most people will see that personal autonomy and choosing what's done to your body um, is very, very important, sacrosanct, and, you know, you can't violate that. Um, and, yeah, that's how I got involved in that campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to me that you talk about the um, pejorative terms that were thrown around to describe you for all these different camps that you're involved with. And it's 
almost like they were thrown out by mainstream media or by politicians as a way to totally smear anyone that held an opposite belief. Now, the psychology behind that would be very interesting to dive into, but it's also one of the things that got you and I talking as much as we did because we touched base before that, but it was on seeing some of the posts that I'd shared that, you know, you slid into my DM, so to speak, and and we got talking about everything that, that was happening and it, it sparked a, a conversation and I think a budding friendship uh, between the two of us. But when we go on from what they stand for, um, essentially looking at the anti-mandate situation, it's very much so in the realms of, listen, there's an element of patient doctor confidentiality or medical history, uh, medical privacy. Then there's also the element of your body, your choice, personal freedoms in there. Now, when you have that combined and you see what's going on, what was it that made things so difficult, do you think, for politicians and others to understand? Because I know a lot of doctors and I know a lot of doctors who thought that, no, these mandates are the best thing for us. We, we need this. And one thing we can touch on afterwards is the fact that a lot of doctors also say that you need to be vaccinated to work in the NHS anyways for other things. So first off, why don't we talk about what do you think it is that makes it so difficult for this to be, this concept to be so hard for people to understand? And then we'll touch on doctors and vaccines and the other stuff. Well, so the thing is, I don't find it difficult. And to me, it's glaringly obvious and how, how important it is not to mandate medical treatment. So it's very difficult for me to get into the mindset of those who think, yes, we should do this. I, I actually find it incredulous. I can, I can theorize and speculate, but the truth is I, I, I'm not in their heads and I can't understand it. Um, I've heard so much recently about you know, medical treatment being withdrawn transplant so you know if you're not vaccinated you can't receive an organ you can donate it but you can't receive it um if you if you want ivf treatment in, in scotland i think for example if you if you're not vaccinated you're 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 not you're declined ivf treatment is that I mean, blanket over the whole of scotland or is that particular uh trust? I, I just read somewhere i think in scotland that if you want ivf treatment you can't have it if you're not vaccinated and it goes on and on and on, you know, where medical treatment is being withdrawn or withheld, and that's medical discrimination. Okay, let's just be clear about it. It's medical discrimination, medical apartheid, but how can anyone think that's ethically right? And so then it comes back to, you know, why, why, why are people pushing, doctors pushing, you know, mandating? And I think it's part of the things that Robert Malone touched upon, you know, this um, idea of, you know, mass delusion psychosis you know and people I, I think genuinely you know like call me naive I think most people are good intentioned good people you know the vast majority people want to do what's right and if they think this is what's right they're going to save people other people from getting unwell other people from dying this is the best way to do it they will be a good human being by doing this and if you're not doing this, then you're a bad human being, you're reckless, you're dangerous, you're silly. Um, then, you know, and that's what they believe in. Now, that's not to say that, you know, they're bad people coming up with these ideas. I think the fault lies with the media and the politicians, because what's really struck me is how everyone in the Western sphere is almost singing from the same hymn sheet with the news presenters or the politicians. They're using the same words. It's like there's the script they've been handed and they're just reading out the same things. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, build back better. I'm talking about things like, you know, safe and effective, safe and effective. You know, it's, it's happening in America. It's, it's happening here. Safe and effective. You know, just That's say it again. Europe. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it will stick, you know, and, and masks, social distancing, protect society, protect your healthcare system, protect the NHS. You know, these same things are being labeled, very quick sandbites. And it's a kind of social psychological conditioning and programming. You just repeat it again and again and again. You know, I was driving with my family and, you know, 
the, the connection to our Spotify, you know, we we're playing this um, Disney soundtrack, but it cut off and then suddenly the radio came on and it was all about get, make sure you're vaccinated, protect those around you. And I was like, oh my God, I turned it off. You know, it's just, it's there constantly bombarding you. And my five-year-old daughter was very quick and tuned in, daddy, what are they saying? Why are they saying we need to get vaccinated? You know, and that clip was on for literally seconds. And so this is what I'm trying to sell you. And that was just one tiny example. But, you know, you walk around the streets, there's billboards and yellow and red promoting this agenda. And, you know, if you're a good intention person, you know, you're a good human being, you think I'm a good person. I want to do what I do. I want to do the right thing. And I'm being told this is the right thing. Well, you're going to start, you know, doing doing things that are fundamentally unethical. You know, it's that saying, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. These people think they're, they're well-intentioned, but sadly, they're fundamentally wrong. I think to, to that end, it's not that they're doing it blindly and just... Um, regardless of the outcomes i think there's an element of again that thing that we spoke about at the beginning of the trust in your medical community of the trust within your politicians not to uh send you up uh, up the river without a paddle kind of thing and that's it it's the lack of informed consent it's the lack of information surrounding what's going on here or what the potential um detrimental effects are from this that's leading people to follow this ultimately baffling decision of yeah let's just mandate everything it should at the end of the day come down to as every other medical procedure your body your choice if someone was to deny medical treatment that was potentially life-saving for them at the end of the day it's their choice the doctor cannot unless um they're not mentally capable for themselves to make that decision the doctor can't force a medical procedure on them even if it was life-saving um very let's talk about something that a lot of doctors seem to be coming back with and then we're going to talk about the vaccine itself and whether or not it's a good option, whether or not it's necessary for everybody and, and those kinds of things. But first off, one of the things that you hear often from doctors is, yeah, but yeah, everyone's making a fuss over this vaccine, but we got to get the hep B vaccine anyway. Like, we got to get other vaccines if we want to work in the NHS. What's so different about this? Can you shed some light there? Because I heard um, a very interesting yeah. statement from well, you saying that it's not actually mandatory. Yeah, so in the UK, in the UK, there is no vaccine that is mandated for medical practice. Um, it's all advisory and guidance. And all of the vaccines that I've taken um, are taken to protect me as an individual. So take, for example, the Hep B vaccine that's often touted and Sajid Javid has talked about that as an excuse to mandate the COVID vaccine. The Hep B is taken by medical professionals who are exposed to potential blood and fluid. And as a surgeon, for example, I've taken the Hep B vaccine. But it was taken to protect me from a patient who is Hep B positive. Um, so I've had my Hep B you know, vaccines and uh, I am hopefully lifelong immune. I've had blood tests to show that I've got the antibodies and et cetera. So I didn't take the, the Hep B vaccine to protect my patients, this is for society or my family, it's to protect me as an individual. And so far, any medical intervention that I've, I'm aware of has always been taken to protect the patient who is taking the drug, the tablet, or whatever it is, operation. It's never taken for someone else. And even if you don't take the Hep B um, vaccine, for whatever reason, you can still practice. I think... Um, I was speaking to an occupational health um, person in the NHS and they were making it clear to me that what happens is you have a blood test every year and they check your viral load and titers and if it's low then you can carry on working. If it's high then you may have to be restricted from practice and there's lots of different reasons. But fundamentally it's not the case that look if you don't have this Hep B vaccine you can't work. That, that does not 
stand. And um, all the other vaccines I've taken are from myself. Now, this is very different from what the COVID vaccine mandate was. It was about frontline healthcare workers. And like a lot of the things that we're hearing is very misleading because frontline healthcare workers, I don't know what comes into your mind. What comes into my mind is nurses on the front line on, you know, in, in the wards, doctors on the wards. You don't think about the cleaners and the porters and the, and the catering staff. You're not thinking of the admin or secretaries. You're not thinking of the car parking attendant or the building contractor coming in to fix the leaky roof. You don't think of all those people. You think frontline, frontline workers. Well, believe it or not, that's that is complete BS. It's not, not that at all. It is all those other people I've just mentioned. And I know this because I had management contact me telling me how worried they were. They hadn't taken this shot. And this is in the NHS and private sector. Physi they were being told anyone physically entering the boundary of the hospital or clinic had to be fully vaccinated, even contractors coming in to do building work. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like very frontline to me. So this was a way of getting a lot of people vaccinated who may otherwise not have had the vaccine. Classic so, political doublespeak. You <clears> say <throat> one thing, you mean another. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, it came, look, whatever views about the vaccine, you know, I'm all for pro-choice, you know, all for informed consent. You want to take the vaccine, you're fully informed, you know what it involves. It's experimental, it's gene therapy. You want to take it, you want to do it, go for it. I'm not stopping you. But my, I think what really got me fired up, riled up, was the fact that it was a medical intervention that's being forced upon and used with coercion. You know, if you don't have the jab, you don't have the job. And, you know, for a lot of people, you know, I, I would have been able to manage, for, you know, different reasons, you know. But, you know, a lot of people would not be in my situation. There's a lot of people struggling and, you know, holding up a job, two jobs, single parents, working to feed their families, pay for a roof over their heads. You know, that's, that's pressure and that's coercion. And, you know, if I practice my, you know, medicine in that way, you know, Later on this morning, I've got patients coming to see me. If I, if I treated them like that and twisted their arm and forced them to have operations, I think it may be very long before I'm up against General Medical Council and having my license revoked and maybe even ending, ending up in jail. You know, that's not ethical. That's not right. Um, and I thought it was very wrong that the government was acting in such a way. Now, you came back to, you know, why are people doing this? I mean, I think it's multifactorial, you know. I, I always think these things are a lot, a lot more nuanced and complicated than we think. One, you know, you, look at, you can look at the media. Now, the media is meant to hold governments to account, investigative journalism, seek the truth, not sensationalize things, not parrot things from our politicians. But that's what it's become. They're, they're feeding misinformation to us, which the politicians amplify and regurgitate which then the media reamplifies, And so you've got this absolute hurricane vortex of you know, misinformation drowning out the truth. You've got misinformation. People... Sorry? Can you give us some examples of the misinformation? Yeah, so for example, let's go right back to the beginning of the pandemic. We were told right at the beginning, you know, masks don't make any difference. There's no science, they don't help with pandemic and we need to wear masks then we were you know we were told categorically there's no evidence to say masks work and now a few months later we were told everyone needs to mask up double mask triple mask um, and and if we didn't then we were a danger to society i think anyone we, listening to this will say yeah but I suppose that's fair, considering we're dealing with a, a virus that we hadn't seen before. So, of course, the science is going to be evolving in those first few months when we're getting to grips with things, when we're trying to grab the proverbial ball by the horns. That's that's fair, right? Yes and no. So we were also repeated. This is also misinformation. This is a virus we've never seen before. Well, look, there's lots of viruses out there. This is a virus. It's a coronavirus. We've dealt with coronaviruses before. We have pandemic plans in place for influenza and coronavirus. We knew all the data and information. This wasn't some mutant, you know, alien thing that we've learned. It, it's a virus and it's, it has similar properties to all the other viruses in terms of like the size and whether things like masks will work or not. 
And so we've got pandemic plans for a reason and never have these masks been shown to make a difference. And, you know, last night, my five-year-old at bedtime while I was reading a story to her, suddenly for no reason said, Daddy, I think masks are very silly. And I said, Spot on. Yeah, I said, why would you say that? Well, Daddy, my teacher's mask, there's big holes on the side and on the top under her eyes. And... I don't understand. The virus can just pass through them. So why does she have to wear this mask? Because I don't think it works. And I was thinking, wow. So here, my 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 five-year-old, she just turned five, is thinking, reflecting about mask and her teacher and the virus, and broken down how ridiculous it is because it's theater. It's theater. You know, and that's the thing. Even a five-year-old can figure out that the distance doesn't work. And, you know, I, it's hilarious, you know, I watch, I, I, do, I do now watch the news a little bit, unfortunately, but, I, you know, Biden walking across a beautifully manicured lawn wearing a mask because the virus is going to get him. But when he's indoors doing some kind of political meet and greet, he's hugging people, you know, and putting his forehead on other people's forehead. And he doesn't have a mask on. So I think it's an, it's an, an amazing virus how out in the open it, it can, can pick get... and choose when it wants to infect you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So look, so that's just one very small example. But then there's other things like lockdowns. Okay. So we were told two weeks to flatten the curve. Then we told that these lockdowns are essential to protect the NHS and healthcare. But you know, lockdowns have been discussed you know, for years in the pandemic plans. And they've been also thrown out and been shown not to work and make a difference. And the pandemic plans have said, look, we need to keep society moving. There's, you know, it, there's no evidence to say that lockdowns work. But suddenly all these well-prepared plans were thrown out the window and we were told lockdowns are necessary. These massive infringements on human rights and our freedom, you know, really draconian mm -hmm. And where was our media to hold them to account? Not one questioned the government. Like, where is the discussion? Where's the discussion in parliament? You know, why are we doing this? Everyone parted the same line and said, we need this, we need this, we need this. And for a functioning democracy, you need a government that's held to account. You need an opposition that opposes the government when they do something wrong and challenges them you need a media to hold the government to account and you need an independent judiciary um now unfortunately we don't really seem to have any of those which puts us in a tricky position okay so we've outlined some of the misinformation now what is it about the vaccine then that has got on your backup because obviously we've spoken about everything apart from the elephant in the room um we've spoken about the elephant's ears with the lockdown spoken yeah. about the elephant's tail with mandating but we we haven't actually spoken about the vaccine i, I wouldn't say it's got my back up you know I, I i just think it's it's one of many things that as i get older i, I you know i'm I'm transforming into this grumpy old man now, at this point you tell me i'm not a grumpy old man um, uh, the hairline would say otherwise. <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> so basically, I, I just like, I'm a stickler for truth. And I don't do bullshit. And I, I like to talk straight, as you've guessed from this conversation. And, you know, I like to call things out when, when they're wrong. So look, if, if the government and the manufacturers came out and said, look, this, we've got this gene therapy, new technology, it's very experimental, it's been rushed because it's a pandemic. Um, you know, would you like to try this? It may hopefully work. Um, you know, it's voluntary. You know, I wouldn't have an issue. Yeah, it's honest. The issue that I have is that this gene therapy, um, and I think correct me if I'm wrong, I think Moderna, when they applied to the FDA for the user, actually stated that it was gene therapy. I think that's the case, actually. Yeah, um, and uh, they've also yeah. changed the definition of uh, yeah. vaccines. Yeah, to I'm going to come therapy. to that. But I think that actually when they applied to FDA for the user emergency use authorization, they actually said it's gene therapy. So look, 
it's it's not a vaccine in any traditional sense. They've had to change the def definition to include this as a vaccine. So that's just blatant mis misleading, you know? Um, it is experimental in nature. The phase three trials were running till 2023. Um, it, it was rushed. Many steps in a normal drug virus uh, vaccine process were skipped, such as animal testing. The blind placebo, placebo arm was um you know all vaccinated so you, you've lost the, the comparison the double blinded study um we didn't we weren't told about any adverse effects and the individual risk benefits it was promoted as being 95 to 100 percent effective but we weren't told the difference between absolute risk reduction and relative risk reduction um and it just it just goes on and on you know i just think we were we were not given the proper information and we weren't given choice. And I think some people would say to you, well, no one forced you to have this. No one stuck it in your arm. But listen, force comes in different ways. You know, if you're saying to people that you can't travel unless you're vaccinated, you can't work unless you're vaccinated, you can't go to a restaurant unless you're vaccinated. If you're going to make your life as difficult as possible, and I'm sure there was politicians who stated this, that we will make the life for unvaccinated as difficult as possible. You know, these people are not they won't be treated as citizens. You know, this is out there. If you're not vaccinated, you're dirty, filthy, stupid, misogynistic, racist. I think this is coming out of Canada. You know, yeah. I think- And Macron himself is, is quoted as saying that, yeah, um, we're going to try to make your life as difficult as possible. Just in the Arden is on video, and I've got it on the Open Forum podcast page on Instagram, openly saying we're creating a two-tier society. There's yeah. no hiding what's being done here. This is very much out in the open of what the politicians that have said it want to do. They and have... people want to conform. People want to conform. People want to do the right thing. People want to, and so in some, you know, whether it's overt or covert, whether it's direct or indirect, subtle, forceful, it is coercion. And, you know, so this is why I'm against this, because at the end of the day, if we're going to allow governments, politicians, bureaucrats, Bill Gates, you know, that shining example of a healthy specimen of a human being, you know, if these people can force us to take medical interventions now, you know, it opens a, a very dangerous door because we're, what's next? What's the next intervention? And I always find it funny over... It's made me question everything, funnily enough. You know, I, I, I blindly accepted vaccines for myself and my children. And, and now I'm questioning everything because I'm thinking, okay, hold on, why have we even got to this point? And it's funny, vaccines are one of those holy grail things where we just accept it. But if I said to you, you know, we're going to give tablets to every school kid, you know, at certain points in their development, you know, I feel like, what's in the tablet? What tablet? What's the side effects? Why do they need this? And I thought, why don't I ever question this when it comes to the vaccines? You know, the schedule, the vaccine schedules are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. More and more vaccines are put in, repeated boosters. And, and I'm thinking, why have I never questioned this? What's in the vaccines? Why are they getting them? What are the risks and side effects? What's the potential benefits? And I think it goes back even further than this pandemic. We're all being conditioned and we just accepted things. And whether it's society, media, even doctors, the way they're being trained and educated, the way I think it's more indoctrination now. We're lacking critical thinking across the board. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're in the situation we're in. We've lost the capacity to think, you know? Um, now, I think that's kind of controversial. <laughs> and some people might think, here comes a tin fat hat. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I think anyway. I've mentioned this when we've spoken privately as well. I do think there's an element of um, a lack of critical thinking at times. Um, and within the medical profession, what scares me is the people that are championing things like alternative treatment aren't the young doctors that are just coming through who should be vibrant and full of ideas. They're the Peter McCullers they're the Robert Malones, they're the Pierre Corys of the world. 
uh, or the Luc Montagniers, uh, who are saying, hey, we need to look at this from a different angle. Here are some drugs that have worked on other similar diseases or things that have worked on, on um, similar aspects or similar uh, problems that this disease causes. So why don't we look at alternative treatments using medicines that we've used previously? And again, I mentioned it already, I know a lot of doctors and their answer quite simply when I speak about alternative treatments is, yeah, but we would have got a message from the Royal College of Medicine saying you can do this or our protocol would have been updated to say you can do this. So there, and I see it as well in the world of physiotherapy that a lot of people are just becoming protocol driven and mm. um, they lack the insight to say that a protocol is nothing more than, than guide rails in a bowling alley. It gives you the edges and you need to figure out where to go between them. And um, it, it is in a way a bit of a scary notion to think that that element of Sherlock Holmes uh, in a doctor or Dr. House as a doctor, where they have this puzzle to solve and will solve it within the realms of medicine has stopped being within the realms of medicine and more so within the protocol that says you need to do X, Y, Z for X amount of days on X dosage, not treat the patient in front of you. And that's not Absolutely. true of all doctors, mind you. Yeah. And yeah, I'd no, be totally remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that you know, this is a portion of doctors and there are clearly doctors standing up there are clearly medical professionals standing up that's why you have things like the together declaration that's why you have things like nhs nhs 100k that's why you have all these people in america and across the globe that are standing up and saying listen there are other things that we haven't spoken about that need to be explored we don't necessarily have the answer but until you explore it you never know yes but i i want to pull back to something that you said um, so can I just touch upon that quickly, though? I, I think you absolutely nailed this issue because there's, but there's two, two points. One, you've got doctors, and I'm sure physios are the exact same, all the physios that I talk about, I talk to here in the UK. The workload is incredible. You know, they're being asked to do so much, see so many patients in a very short time frame, And, you know, they're worked to the hilt. They don't have time. They don't have time to go and look at research papers and critically appraise them. Now, Sonny, I know you've done this. I know you've gone to research papers and looked at the data and the evidence. And I don't know about you, I find it very hard work. It's time consuming. It's not easy. And reading between the lines is, is, is a skill and it takes time. And when you now even look at some of the papers and studies, what's actually quite worrying is, the raw data isn't even there. You know, for example, the Pfizer data, the raw data has not been published yet. So well, that's never, that, that I, I don't think that's a fair argument because that's never done. Raw data is rarely published. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's a fair um, argument to make. What I think would be more honest is that when the data is presented, you mentioned absolute and relative risks. They don't mention that. Um, they also don't mention numbers needed to treat. I think that is an aspect that doctors are more so likely to understand and be able to utilize right off the bat. Because like you say, they just don't have the time to dig in. And, and also we're not statisticians. You know, most doctors don't really know statistics that well. How many patients you need to para study, how relevant it is, what, what, what um, test to use, you know, we're not statisticians and just telling you as a doctor most of my colleagues and juniors will just look at a paper and look at the conclusion look at the abstract and actually look at the colleges for guidance and protocols and and you're right they are just they're not really thinking for themselves they're not critically appraising things they're just saying right well this is what it's this is the guidance we've been given this is what we're going to do and I think there's an element of time, pressure, and an element of lack of training and statistics um, and expertise in that field. And then totally flipping onto the other side, um, I know a lot of doctors who want to speak up, but are scared to because of the repercussions. 
because of one being pulled up in front of the registration board, the hospital management, or being drawn over the coal and um, hot coals on social media, and um, of being discredited. So I think there's lots of different elements to it. I think so. One, there's a lot of good intention doctors, but who are just simply don't have the time, believe the authority because as doctors tend to believe in authority, they tend to believe that you know authority is good, and 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 the medical director, the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, is telling the truth and. And we need to listen to him. And this is this is this is the right thing. Um, and two, those who, who are challenging it are actually scared to because of what might happen if they do. And I can see why they would think that way. Sorry, I did interrupt you. No, that's all right. That's what we're here for. Right? It's a it's a podcast <laughs> at the end of the day. It's a conversation. Um, I think what you mentioned there of people being scared to speak up, it, it's something that rings true to myself as well, because I've had a lot of people who would privately message me about mm. something I post but say flat out that they can't like it or share it because they're afraid of what's going to happen to their job and that's quite in a way disheartening that they can't but also positive in the sense that yeah, at least they recognize it at least they recognize that there's something to prick their ears up for um yeah, on that note, what I find incredible is that I've been messaged literally now thousands of times privately. And I'd say over 90% of them have the word, thank you for the words, thank you for being so brave and speaking up. And I really thought about this and I thought, how sad that to simply have an opinion and to question is deemed brave. Because what that means is, you know, um, there is no real freedom of speech out there because if you do talk up and say something that is not the accepted narrative that's coming from mainstream media or their politicians, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're in danger of being shot down and it shouldn't be like that. I don't think what I'm doing is brave. I'm just telling people what I think I'm questioning things. Um, why would that be brave? if we had an open society and open press and freedom of speech. The fact that people are telling me that I'm being brave by doing this, I think is quite a sad reflection of our times. Unfortunately, I have to agree. Yeah, it, it, it's true. But I, I wanna dial it back to what you mentioned about the study and the placebo groups. Um, I don't know. Uh, how much you've uh, read into the study, but you also mentioned that numbers needed to treat absolute risk ratios, relative risk. Um, can you maybe dive a little bit deeper on that and, and talk to us about why that's relevant for us as the patient for something that is, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, something that is still down as an experimental drug until at least 2023, something where they're um, refusing to share data for I, if it were up to Pfizer between 55 to 75 years. And the FDA are now joining in with Pfizer to help um, their cause to prevent the data release um, going against judges' orders. Can you maybe talk to us about why relative and absolute risks are relevant for us and yeah um so basically um there's a a group of doctors and healthcare workers called canadian covid um care okay. alliance yeah. um and they they broke down um the pfizer study and why it was poorly designed and flawed essentially um and what's incredulous is that they based, um, you know, vaccinating billions of people around the world on this very flawed study, the study that was designed, funded and paid for by Big Pharma. And it's quite often touted that it was a very big study. It was well designed. 40, people, yeah. Yeah. You know, 40,000 people. It was wonderful. Um, but the reality is it wasn't. And, and, you know, we've had whistleblowers now come out and there's a whistleblower, um, Brooke Jackson, who yeah, spoke directly... earlier on the podcast. Yeah. Ah, so she didn't directly work for Pfizer, but she was subcontracted um, 
for another company, I believe, that did the data collection. Uh, and the CRO, the so the company that actually did the research. Uh, so she was there for the research yeah. as uh, yeah, the regional director for the yeah. management of the research place. So the, the place where the research was carried out, she was working one of one of 40 sites. So she was in charge of two of those sites. And I think what, and, and I believe that she's got some pretty damning evidence to say, you know, things were not being mentioned. Uh, it was, the study was flawed. Adverse effects were not being reported. And yeah. I think she reported this to the FDA and they didn't even launch an inquiry or investigation. And she was basically sacked. She Silent. was sacked six hours after sending the complaint to the FDA. Yeah. And she noted that there were general bad laboratory practice so uh, GLP wasn't carried out with regards to uh, waste disposal and those sorts of things that can be you know pushed away to the the wayside but where her other concerns were the lack of informed consent for patients something that we've already touched on and the um, data alleged data frauds the alleged uh, manipulation of data where uh, even when patients were given a hospital diagnosis following a serious adverse event as serious adverse events are noted when a patient is hospitalized, the um, uh, Pfizer uh, representatives would then ask Ventavia to change the diagnosis into something more favorable. So there are a lot of things that she mentioned on the on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for example, you know, we were told about relative versus absolute risk reduction, and I think the relative risk reduction was something like 95%, um, what they were quoting. But if you actually looked at the absolute risk reduction, the vaccine reduced it by 0.84%. And when we look at studies and any kind of medical intervention, it's meant to be the absolute risk reduction that we look at. And so, you know, data can be manipulated and is manipulated, unfortunately, all the time. And, you know, we're working on what we are seeing and told. So to be honest, even the data that is provided to us, it has been framed. It's framed. And we don't really know whether even that's correct or not. You know, we're, we're assuming all, everything based on what's been told to us and unpicking it. But this is where, for example, the BMJ associate um, editor, Doshi, published last month. Look, we need the raw data. And unless we've got the raw data, you know, independently, we can't verify the claims that are being made by the big pharma companies. And that's, you know, I think that's really, really important. And then the, the fact is, look, if you've got nothing to hide, show it to us. And, you know, I think there's a freedom of information request to one of the big pharma companies. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll release everything in 85 years, you know. 75 years, yeah, yeah, Pfizer. And, and, and I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, well, well, again, what have you got to hide? You know, what's the problem? Um, so look, there's, you know, you can go on and on. I think your viewers and listeners, if they want, can go on, for example, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance group. There's a lot of things out there, you know, why the Pfizer inoculations, more harm than good. What is a scientific review critique of the six months data in the New England Journal of Medicine? You know, if you want to look, you can find a lot. You can go to Robert Malone's Substack. You can go to Steve Kershey's um, and newsletters and get feeds from them. I mean, there's a lot of people out there trying to get information out and cleverer people than me with all the facts and numbers. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the vaccine, but what I'm saying is as a person and as a doctor, one is not a traditional vaccine. It is gene, gene therapy. And it is experimental and people need to be given that informed information, you know, so that they can consent to this. Because look, I wonder how many people would have taken this vaccine if they were told it, it was experimental. You know, if it was in that, you know, this is an experimental group. I wonder how many people would have taken it if it's gene therapy. Now, a lot of people I know don't want GMO food. You know, there's a big thing in, in Europe, we don't want American GMO 
Monsanto, whatever it was, you know, grain and rice. And I don't want that stuff. I don't want to eat GMO food. But, you know, if you said this is a GMO, you know, drug that you're having, I'd question how many people would take it. So, you know, it's just, I think that's where I'm coming from. I'm coming from, look, you want to get the science and the data and the numbers and facts and are great. You know, it's all out there. But just standing back, common sense, using common sense and reasoning. There's a lot of things that are making me a little bit uncomfortable. And I want some questions answered. And I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied by our politicians just parroting out the same lines safe and effective, safe and effective. When the VAERS data and the yellow card system are showing actually people are dying from the vaccine, people are having severe adverse effects. And actually with this round of vaccines, COVID vaccines, vaccines, jabs, drug therapy, gene therapy, whatever you want to call it, more so than all the other vaccines put together in the last 30 years. Now, if that doesn't ring alarm bells, you know, frankly, you can look at all the data and numbers to your heart's content. If that doesn't make you think, wow, this is a bit strange, you know, I don't know what will. Fair. And, and, I, I and think... then you also just need to look at things like all the countries that were the most vaccinated, Australia, Israel. And you, for example, compare. There's a wonderful experiment taking place in Israel, in the Middle East. Look at Palestine, look at Israel, and look at the infection rates and the fatality rates yeah. yeah and i think we need to be careful because data is being it's is really being manipulated what you almost need to look at is all-cause mortality and the all-cause mortality for whatever reason is higher now than at any other point and what is accounting for that we don't know but we need to ask why what's driving all-cause mortality to be higher now and especially in these highly vaccinated countries, you know, Israel talking about fourth, have they had their fourth booster now? I don't know, fourth jab? I don't know if it got to that point yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They started rolling it out. And last I checked, discussions over the fifth were also occurring. And if you go on, you know, the, the online and look at infection rates, COVID infection rates, you know, the developing world is almost flatlined. But you've got places like Israel and, and the UK and, and Australia all spiking. And you're thinking, well, if, this, if you've had a vaccine, that works, that, you know, why is this happening? And, and, and then again, it just, it's common sense. Look, vaccines are meant to stop you getting infected. It's meant to protect you as an individual, stop you transmitting it. That's the whole point of getting a vaccine. Yeah, and um, I think if, if we were to take a, a step forward from there and um, or maybe even take a bit of a swerve, we mentioned the Together Declaration uh, right at the start of the conversation. And you guys seem to have had a massive win um, with what's now been put out as the end to the mandate for front, uh, frontline workers. Um, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about how that went down for you guys there at the Together Declaration and what are your steps moving forward? What are the, what, what's next for the Together Declaration as well? Yeah, so basically it was an, it was an amazing win uh, and there was a lot of pressure and a, a massive groundswell of support from people who'd been vaccinated as well, you know, I'd had patients coming in saying, like, I've had two shots, I have a booster, I'm totally standing for you. And that was really nice. And, you know, it's funny, when I probably first reached out to you, I think it was in, I was in a very dark place. It was great. I felt very lonely. I felt like, you know, everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid and I had a problem. Why couldn't I accept what everyone else was accepting? And I felt very much like I was on my own. And actually, this whole journey in the last two, three months has shown me that there is a lot of people who think and feel the way I do and you do. And, you know, we got thousands of people signed the petition. I think three, 400,000. We dropped it off at 10 Downing Street. We started getting some media airtime. People started picking up, you know, things like GB News. Um, and, you know, it's not mainstream. But the funny thing is people are flocking away from the mainstream um, media outlets like BBC and CNN towards the, the alternative media. Um, and we got pressure on the government. We had a massive march 
at least 80,000 people. Um, interestingly, the, the press only mentioned it as a, a few hundred people. Um, and of course, in, in, in a very negative way, I thought it's incredulous that it wasn't picked up properly by any of the media outlets. But the government, I think, was shaken by this because the reality is for every person that's out on the street, there's at least another hundred who are thinking of doing it, but for whatever reason couldn't come out. So they knew this was a big problem and it was disproportionate. It was a major breach in our human rights. So they said that it was going to go out for discussion. I think doing a U-turn would have been too politically um, disadvantageous for them. They had, they've, got to, they've got to protect their image. So they went, we'll go out to consultation. There was a consultation online. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the questions that they were asking, but there was a lot of double-double negatives. So it's very confusing. Do you think we should not and will it not impact adversely? It was just so confusing. I even had to spend quite a lot of time reading each question thinking, what is what are they asking? But anyway, I think 90,000 people submitted responses of which around 90% said, no, we should not have mandates. So it's a very powerful message even through that consultation. So now it's officially revoked. They're, they're, there's no mandates for healthcare workers. But interestingly, there's still some push pushback from you know, um, educational and health um, trusts out there, where I think there's people saying, if you want to travel or go on a school trip, if you're not vaccinated, you can't do it. So I'm getting these DMs from people saying, oh, my daughter can't go on the school trip because the travel company and the educational institution have said, you're not vaccinated. Now there's no law for that. That's illegal, unlawful. And, you know, we need to fight that kind of discrimination. There's, there are some hospitals, I think, saying if you want to, if you are applying for a new job to show that you're vaccinated. And again, that's not lawful. So I'm, I'm just, these are just things that people are messaging me. So I haven't seen anything directly, but they're telling me this is what's happening. And I think there's other issues now, such as the Human Rights Law Act, which the government is trying to bring in, which is trying to say, yeah, human rights, you know, your human, individual human rights are important. I don't know about you, but whenever I think of human rights, I think of me as a person, what are my human rights? I don't ever think of what are the human rights of society. It's about me as a person. What am the I? Individual. Yeah. The individual. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not but the think, mass collective. Yeah, but if you look at the amendments, it's almost like the government will decide what's in the greater interest of society, and that will override your individual human rights. So they could use that law, act, whatever you want to call it, acts aren't actually law. They could use that act, that legislation, to force then individuals to get vaccinated because in, in the greater good. Um, so it's, that's dangerous. So for me, I think very much, look, we've had a win and we won this battle. But unfortunately, there's a lot more still in the pipeline. And, you know, there's the policing act there was, the coronavirus act, you know, all these things that have been brought in that restrict our ability to protest and our right to stand up against the government. And I think a big warning is what's happened in Canada, you know, with the truckers convoy. And what was really scary, I was watching that very carefully. I don't know if you were, but, you know, mainstream media was saying, oh, bunch of right-wing Nazi, swatch-ticker, Confederate, nutjobs are going over to take over the government, overthrow the government. And first of all, they denied it was happening. Then it got to a point where it was so large, they had to accept that there was something happening and they're all a bunch of right-wing loonies and they're violent extremists. And then, then it was like, actually, these are really nice, peaceful protesters. You know, they're waving the Canada flag, there's children, they're singing, dancing. And despite that, these lovely, you know, well-intentioned human souls were, you know, the book came down on them, the horses were trampling on them and their money was taken away from them and their bank accounts frozen and emergency rule law was introduced. Now, if you just look at what happened, media did not cover the truth, parroted out, out what the government said, banks and corporations acted on behalf of the government as agents and took away their money and ability for people to feed themselves. And the government introduced an emergency act. Now, do you know in 1933, there's a Reichstag fire and the Nazi government used that as an excuse to introduce emergency laws. Now, I know for some people, they get very emotional. Don't 
compare the Nazi era with now, it's wrong. But look, well, we have to, you know, we have very similar parallels. And what happened in Germany was fascism. And fascism is where government and corporation work hand in hand in restricting the individual's rights and freedoms. And what we have now is the techno companies, the big social media companies, the big pharma, all entwined, they're all intertwined, and our politicians all working in concert, ultimately, to restrict our freedom, our freedoms, our human rights. And I'm afraid there are parallels, there are parallels. And it's not quite maybe 1940 Nazi Germany, but we're definitely in the early 1930s. And if people don't wake up to what's happening and where the direction of travel is, you know, we could end up in a bad position, in a bad situation. And yeah. that's why I think the Together Declaration isn't going to go away now. You know, no. we're, we're here to stay and to keep fighting for our freedom. Yeah, I have a, a friend and also uh, another um, guest of the podcast, the CCU nurse, Tiffany, uh, who was there for the um, protests and everything. And seeing how it was from her perspective compared to what was portrayed in the media it was absolutely beautiful to to see the disparity between the two and like you say the the way that it was um presented to the populace who weren't involved who didn't have an ear to the ground was that it was just crazy yahoo right-wing extremists that wanted to overthrow the government not the people that it was who were honest hard-working folk trying to restore some humanity and basic human fundamental rights um and what you mentioned there about the ability of the banking corporations and the government to um pull the rug out from underneath both protesters and the truckers themselves by taking their ability to earn money away freezing bank accounts is absolutely despicable and there's no other word for it other than totalitarian or fascist control that i think you know seeing the direction that the together declaration is going to be going into in the future is a, a nice way to to end what would you say would be the important things for people to look at or to look into at this point in time that maybe they're not paying attention to what would i be think your recommendation yeah i think i think there's a lot of positive to come out of this and, you know in every adversity I also look out for the opportunities and I think there's a lot of opportunities you know we've society the west our liberal democracies we've ended up where we are because fundamentally things were not right you know society's become quite decadent mainstream media our politicians they're all corrupt but there's opportunity here there's opportunity where we can start reshaping our societies and the way we look at things and our health. You know, I think this has raised a lot of awareness that we need to find alternative sources of information. You know, look at your podcast, you know, the situation forced you to form this podcast and get the truth out there, you know, and this is really important and this is great. And more and more people are going to be doing this. And, you know, people are drifting away from traditional news sources. But the same also is with healthcare. You know, we need to think out of the box about how we look after our health. And is your health in a tablet or a vial and syringe? Or are there other ways to look after your body, to eat better, to, you know, exercise? Where does our food come from? Is it sustainable? There's so many things that we can now start looking at the bigger picture because this has opened up a lot of people's eyes that something was not right. And I think try and switch off from one source of news and the mainstream media. And you know, if you're finding yourself getting emotional, distressed, upset, depressed, from watching news or well then switch off you know there's a lot of good in this world get outside get out into the countryside start exercising think about how you eat and drink 
think about how what kind of role you play in your community you know if we had lockdowns and look at the damage that caused the social isolation cutting off from your friends and family well we need the opposite we're social beings human beings need to be with other human beings mixing meeting greeting hugging shaking hands you know um talking conversing being able to have a debate and you know what not agreeing on everything you know, it's fine. It's okay to disagree. That's all right. But just being able to have that chance to talk to someone and even say we agree to disagree, it's good. Um, and I think that's what people need to do now. We need to like end this whole theater and facade of social distancing and masking up and come together. Yeah, no, beautiful. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I hope to have you back on again soon. Thank you very much, Dr. Matt. Pleasure.